Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome to this new episode of your Linux and open source news podcast. I'm just back from my holiday, I'm a bit sunburned, it's 8.40pm on Saturday when I'm recording this, I'm still a bit woozy from the flight home, but I am not about to let you go through a full week without your usual dose of Linux and open source news. And this week we have people from KDE, GNOME and Debian pushing for funding to add support for payments in FlatHub. It's a relatively old proposal, but it's been getting more traction recently. We have proof that companies use free and open source software wrong, basing all their developments on obsolete stacks that aren't maintained and are left unpatched. And we have the unfortunate demise of the HP Dev 1, which will be discontinued and probably puts an end to HP's Linux efforts. Now, as always, all the links to the articles I use to make the podcast are in the description. And as always, this podcast is user-funded, so if you like it without ads and sponsors, please consider looking at the links in the show notes and supporting it. So, now let's dive in. So, let's talk about FlatHub. And there's a proposal that's been made back in November 2022, so it's not exactly brand new. And it's been submitted to the plain text group, which is a sort of initiative developed by Schmidt Futures, which is sort of an investment fund uh, created by the ex-CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt. And so this proposal has been made by Robert McQueen, which is the CEO of Endless OS and the president of the GNOME board, but it seems to be also endorsed by KDE, by GNOME in a larger sense, and by Debian as well. And this proposal is to try and raise some money to develop the necessary infrastructure on FlatHub to support payments, donations, and subscription options to FlatHub, so people can actually support the applications that they use, maybe as a pay-what-you-want model, maybe as developers set a fixed price and people have to pay it to access the app, but it still would be a great help to solve monetization and funding problems in open source. Now, this proposal has been submitted in the apparently normal way for the plain text group, which is basically you create a text file explaining the proposal and you create a pull request on their GitHub repo. And so this has been done. And that proposal seems to point out that FlatHub is already moving towards that funding goal. Uh, They're already working on adding donations and payments on FlatHub through Stripe. And they're also working on a way for developers to verify that they actually own the apps that they publish with a little blue check mark. Basically, I already talked about it in a previous podcast uh, that's already available in the beta FlatHub portal. And it will be available for everyone soon. Uh, And if you're wondering why that might be useful or why anybody would want that, well, it just lets users know that the application that they download has been packaged and published by the original developers of the app. It's not a repackage, it's not made by a third party. And so while it's not absolutely essential in an app store where everything is 100% free, like we have currently on FlatHub, once you add payments, you might want to be sure that the person you're actually paying is the person that's developing the app and not the person who's packaging it. And so having this official verified badge means that you know that you're gonna contribute to the application itself and not to anybody that's just profiting off of the name and the brand of the application. Now, of course, this proposal is super well developed. There's a lot of arguments made there, and it's a very interesting read uh, whether you're for or against it. And I'm sure a lot of people will be unhappy about such a move and hope that it fails. 
because there's always been that notion floating around in the Linux and open source community that going commercial is bad somehow. But here we're talking about Flathub. It's not like it's a for-profit company. It's a community-controlled non-profit. It's not a corporate entity. So of course they will probably take a small cut of the payments that you make to the applications because they need to run those servers. But apart from that, I think they're a pretty trustworthy platform. I haven't seen any evidence to the, count to the contrary. And I actually have a, a video later this month on Flathub centralization of software on Linux. Is it a bad thing when it's done with open source software and no barriers to escape that centralized platform? So we'll have a more open discussion on that uh, in the future. Now, for now, personally, I can say I'm all for it. Uh, I think it's great. If I could pay a few bucks to buy GIMP, to buy LibreOffice or any other app and have some kind of curated list on Flathub that is also reflected with a Flathub account on, on GNOME software or on Discover so I can re-download all these apps easily instead of having to look for them individually, I would absolutely do it. I would pay and I would gladly pay to support these projects. And sure, I could get them for free from somewhere else if they are paid exclusively on Flathub. But yeah, I think supporting the projects that you use is crucial. And that's why I also have a ton of Patreon donations for various applications that I use, because I think it's important. You cannot forget that those people are giving up their free time to develop this. And so I think they deserve a reward. So yeah, maybe having that final, stupid, silly, easy way to do it, to just click a button, having one payment detail already saved somewhere, maybe locally, maybe on a Flathub account, maybe it could be PayPal if you want it to be more secure than, than giving up your credit card information. But having that single place for payments will probably help uh, with the fun funding problem on open source. So I hope this proposal is accepted. If it's not, I'm pretty sure they'll still work on it, but it's probably going to take way longer. Now, still on the topic of open source, it looks like most companies are using false wrong. Uh, recent research showed that 84% of commercial and proprietary code bases show at least one known open source vulnerability. And 48% of these code bases also showed a high risk vulnerability that is staying unpatched, even though there is a patch available to fix it. So how has this research been conducted? It's Synopsys, which seems to be a research firm, an audit firm that just looks at code bases in, in the prospect of mergers and acquisitions. They have access to the proprietary code base and they audit it for vulnerabilities, for open source licensing compliance, etc. And so in the 2023 report that they made, uh, they based themselves on audits of all those code bases, uh, 1,500 in total. And so they looked through them and they, they looked at how many vulnerabilities there were and if they were compliant with the open source licenses of the software that they used. And apparently the number of unpatched open source vulnerabilities rose by 4% since 2021 and free and open source code is virtually everywhere. Uh, in aerospace, aviation, automotive or transportation, 73% of the total code including the whole code base of proprietary and commercial software. 73% of that code base is made of open source code, which means that they only developed 27% of their own code and they just reuse everything else as open source, which is the goal of open source. The issue is that 63% of that code contained vulnerabilities. And do note that it is not because that open source code is insecure because 
of the code bases that they audited had vulnerabilities because they used outdated versions of their open source components or libraries. There were patches available, but they just didn't apply them. And apparently, it is because most teams might think that upgrading to a newer version would take too much time or would create other problems that they would have to fix. And so they prefer leaving a vulnerability in instead of actually updating the various fast components that they use. 73% of their code is basically stuck in place, not being updated. It's insane. And that strategy is completely stupid, but it probably cannot be helped. If you worked in development or product management, you should know that. The time that you would like to take for maintenance, for updates, for removing technical debt, and just improving your product without any features is never prioritized. Uh, every company is always pushing for the new feature, for the new release, for something that stockholders and, and, and just investors can look at, uh, either to raise more money or to justify that they're spending so much on, on salaries for developers. But generally, even if you push super hard for it, having a full development sprint, if you're using the agile method, if you have a full development sprint, dedicated to maintenance, updating your libraries and updating your servers and revamping your instances and your architecture, well, you're a lucky bastard because that absolutely never happened at any of the companies that I ever worked for. We had to slot in very, very small maintenance windows inside of full feature sprints and it always never worked, basically. Now, let's talk about hardware. You might remember the HP Dev 1, which is a pretty great laptop made in collaboration with the teams at HP and System76. It was basically based on a chassis that HP already had, but they revamped the internals and the components with the help of System76 to make sure that they picked components that worked perfectly with Linux and specifically PopOS. This laptop shipped with PopOS out of the box. And they even had some contributions that were upstreamed in the AMD drivers and the Linux kernel to improve battery life uh, when in standby mode. And I reviewed that laptop and I found it was an awesome option for people who would like something as sturdy and, and professional as a ThinkPad without getting a ThinkPad. Because, well, not everyone likes ThinkPads. I, I personally think that their design is absolutely atrocious and the new ones aren't as reliable as the old ones, and the old ones look like dog crap, in my opinion, which you might not care. I personally like my laptops looking sleek, and I think the Dev 1 uh, filled that bill really nice. It had that little knob that you could use, probably not as good as the Lenovo one. It had a great keyboard. It had those two buttons on the top of the touchpad for using the knob. It was sturdy, had a great display, very bright, uh, covered in glass, super sturdy chassis. It was a great product, basically. You can look at the review on the YouTube channel if you want. Great, great laptop. But it looks like ThinkPad owners will get to, to laugh and keep their laptops because HP just canned the project. The HP Dev 1 is now discontinued, they won't produce any more of it, and it won't see a second iteration, although at least the company will still support existing models all the way through January 2026, or at least three years after your purchase. So it will get support, and I'm pretty sure that System76 will keep shipping updates to it for PopOS, maybe with specific tweaks to it because I don't think that would cost them that much to do, and they probably don't want their first venture with a major uh, manufacturer to, to look so sour. 
But obviously the problem is because they didn't sell much. That, that, that's generally why you don't continue a product line. You just didn't sell enough. And it's easy to see why this one didn't sell. It only sold with a QWERTY keyboard and only in the US. It never was released for any other country. And they also never advertised it. It was never promoted on HP's website. I don't think it even was part of their menu on their website. You could just not find it from HP's website, only from System76. And if you're on System76's website, why would you buy an HP laptop instead of buying one from System76? If you know about a Linux manufacturer and you voluntarily went to their website, why would you buy something from HP there? That's not what you're looking for. So basically, no promotion, and they just never gave it a chance. It kind of feels like there were so many enthusiastic people behind this project. When I reviewed the laptop, I had a small, like, let's call it press conference, but it was a, a, a video, a Zoom call, basically. Uh, and the people behind it at HP and System76 were super enthusiastic. They were very open to questions. They told us about the work they made with System76, the work they upstreamed, they really looked passionate about this. They really wanted this to work. But I think corporate just saw a side project and you know what, with minimal investment, if it works, it works, but we're never gonna push it. And if we don't push it and it doesn't work, then we haven't lost anything. And of course, when you don't push a product, it doesn't work. That's uh, that's kind of the, the law here. If you don't talk about something, it just never sells. That <laughs> I don't know what they were expecting, basically. So they failed with that thing. And it's hard to avoid the comparison with Dell, for example, who has their product line, their XPS product line, that ships with Ubuntu out of the box and has done so for like, what, 10 years? So of course, the XPS is basically just the exact same laptop, but they just pre-install Ubuntu on it. There is no specific customization. There is no specific work to support anything specific. It's just the same laptop. So they didn't develop something from the ground up, HP didn't really develop it from the ground up, but they put a lot more work in it. But still, come on, they, they could have done so much better with this thing. And yeah, it really shows that a company needs to commit to a product for it to actually work. And they didn't, HP just didn't. So it's sad. I hope this doesn't put the final nail in the coffin of HP's Linux efforts, but knowing big companies, they probably will assume that no one wants Linux from their own failure. I don't know. And more hardware uh, with the Pine 64 this time, which has a better track record of actually delivering their devices. They're in limited quantities, but the people who buy them actually get them and they just don't can their product lines out of nowhere. So they're already planning a revision to their Pine tab, which is, if you don't know, their Linux powered, well, ARM powered tablet that runs Linux out of the box. So this second model will embark either four gigs of RAM and 64 gigs of eMMC storage or eight gigs of RAM with 128 gigs of storage, which is still eMMC, no SSD, so the, the disk speeds are gonna suck, but it's, it's a small tablet. It's also priced higher than the previous model. Uh, the entry level with four gigs of RAM will cost 159 US dollars, and the larger capacity one will cost 209 dollars. The initial Pine tab costs $99, so it's a big price hike, uh, up to double that price, basically. But for the price, you still get the detachable keyboard, which is nice. It is sort of a surface form factor, basically, that they're going for with the Pine tab. And all versions uh, also seem like they are user openable, repairable, and upgradable, which is better than a Microsoft Surface in that, uh, on that front. 
it, it does still look like a decent deal. Uh, I mean, $209 for a full Linux tablet with a keyboard, that, that's not bad. But you can't expect that much performance out of it. It will use a Rockchip RK3566, which is much better than the previous all-winner CPU in the first model. Uh, it's still a quad-core ARM CPU going up to 1.8 GHz. It has a way better GPU. It's a much more recent Mali GPU, but it's still like not very powerful. It's Pinebook Pro plus performance levels, basically. So yeah, don't expect to, to have that as your only computing device, but it can be a very nice on-the-go system that you can use either for touch, for reading books, for watching videos, or as a full Linux computer when you need it. Uh, it's, it's still going to work. It will still sport a 10.1-inch IPS touchscreen, which is probably too small for a full-on work tablet, honestly. Uh, but they did move from the small micro USB port to a full-on USB 3.0 Type-C port, USB-C, which is much better. But they also got rid of the USB 2.0 Type-A port that the first model had, and now they'll have a USB 2.0 Type-C, which... why? <laughs> if you're gonna keep USB 2.0, at least keep it the original Type-A form factor, so people don't have to buy dongles for everything. I don't know. Either you put two USB 3.0 or 3.2 Type-C's, or you put a USB-A 2.0, but a USB-C 2.0 port just doesn't make sense to me. So as I said, user serviceable, upgradable, and it runs Linux out of the box. Apparently some kind of Arch Linux build for ARM, and with KDE out of the box. Uh, they, which, hey, it's weird again, because why would you use KDE on a touch screen? I don't know, they, they improved their touch mode, but GNOME just does feel like a much better option uh, on a touchscreen than KDE. It just, it just feels, it does, it isn't designed for touchscreen, but it works better as a concept on touchscreens, in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, KDE out of the box. It's Linux, so, well, if it's, if it's got an ARM build uh, for Arch, then you can basically just install GNOME on it if you prefer it. So it will be available to order in April, unless something goes wrong. And as with all Pine64 devices, they are meant as experiments for people to develop a robust ARM support on Linux, update their applications, update the OS, generate some interest in ARM-based computing. And it's also for enthusiasts to have a, a nice, not overpriced toy to, to play with and, and try things out. But honestly, since most Linux tablet projects just never really seemed to go anywhere. Uh, there was that tablet, the uh, the Jinkpad, I think, uh, which completely failed and went nowhere. I still have mine in a drawer. It's a it's a paperweight now, but it, because the bootloader was never open, and there was the FightTab project, which also seems to be a bit dead in the water. I actually enjoyed the FightTab. It was very nice. It was basically a Chromebook but a tablet uh, with an open source version of Chrome OS on it. Good good system but it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere now. It's, uh, it's, it's just not there anymore. Like you can pre-order it, but apparently no one gets any confirmation for pre-orders. No one gets charged anything. The project might be dead. So it's good to have options like the PineTab from companies that have proven that they do deliver on the hardware that they sell. Even if it's like underpowered, at least you're getting the device and it's there and it works. So yeah, it's, it's still good to have these options. And while we're talking about ARM, uh, let's talk about uh, support for Apple M1 chips. Uh, many people, myself included, uh, when they talked about the Linux kernel 6.2, uh, started talking about a future where any distro would run perfectly on those shiny new Apple MacBooks and, and Mac Minis and Mac Studios. And, and 
I was one of them. I was clamoring for, yeah, finally we're gonna have like Ubuntu or Fedora running on a, on a full Mac. You won't need to use the Asahi distro. That celebration was apparently very premature. The developers for the Asahi Linux distro explained in a Twitter and Mastodon thread that no, you are not close to doing that. Uh, support for the main chip is in the Linux kernel, but it's just the start. Many other components of these devices still do not have support in the mainline Linux kernel, including all the input devices, uh, like the touchpad and the keyboard, they just will not work for now on a mainline keyboard. So you will still need to use Azahi or at least Azahi's kernel. And also you would need a kernel compiled with 16K page size instead of 4K as it is now. And most distros that have an ARM build do not do that right now. So basically, no, the Linux kernel 6.2 isn't the point where you can run a full mainline Linux distro on, a, on, an Intel, on an M1 Mac. They still said that this is their final goal. They want to have all their work upstreamed in the kernel when it's ready. They're not saying that just, that, so, just so that people fund and, and work with Azahi Linux. That's, that's really their goal. They want all that work to go in the Linux kernel. But for now and the foreseeable future, you will need to run Azahi or the Azahi kernel to have a usable system on an M1 Mac. Now, they're also apparently having some partnerships in the cards with certain distros to help them ship ARM builds that run well on these Macs. And they will apparently have something to announce in the near future. So probably some kind of partnership, maybe with Fedora, maybe with Ubuntu, maybe with Mint. Any, any other big distro could be a, a good candidate. And, and they will help them having the right kernel that supports everything out of the box in its alpha slash beta stage, of course. Not everything that they developed is stable. It's all reverse engineered. There's still a lot of work to do. But it's still cool. Like... It shows that they're really open about this. They just don't want to keep all that stuff for themselves. They're open sourcing it. They're mainlining it. And it's great. And so in the meantime, mea culpa for being too enthusiastic about this last week. Uh, I, I think I might have misunderstood this and I might have led people to believe that yes, that new kernel will let you run any distro on an M1 Mac right now, but it's not the case. Still, congrats to the Azahi team. They are doing an awesome job reverse engineering all that stuff in less than two years and already managing to have a fully functional system uh, with their own kernel is pretty insane, let's be honest. Okay, now let's talk GNOME. Uh, this week, there are some good news about the GNOME Circle program, which has reached its 50th accepted application. And if you don't know what GNOME Circle is, it's some kind of GNOME program that showcases applications that were designed for GNOME specifically, and that follow all their interface, design, and accessibility guidelines for the project. They're not official GNOME apps. They're not part of the core GNOME project. They're not shipped by default if you install the full vanilla version of GNOME, but they're like the endorsed applications. You can compare this basically to the elementary OS apps that are showcased in the elementary OS app center. They are applications that really follow all the guidelines and that you can be sure will not look out of place on your system. And yeah, it's really good. Uh, recently added apps include Chess Clock, which is a very, very simple one that just lets you time your chess sessions. Uh, there's Komiku, which is a manga reader. There's Eyedropper, which is a color picker and color palette generator. And there are other applications as well that have been added over the month, over the, over the few months uh, that passed. Other applications with cool updates in GNOME land include Pika Backup, 
which now lets you enable presets to exclude folders from your backups. So you don't have to manually add every folder you want to exclude from your backup. You can just write a regular expression and you can exclude folders based on that or files based on that. You can also manually delete certain archives to free up some space and you have more automated help to mount USB drives and use them as backup devices. There's also been some work on GNOME JS or JJS, J GJS, the JavaScript engine that powers GNOME Shell and the various GNOME apps. Uh, this thing received some work. It has some new methods, more integration with Glib. So basically developers that either use it to create applications or GNOME Shell developers will be able to extract more power out of this system, which is nice. Uh, GNOME applications also received some work. Uh, GNOME Boxes got a new virtual machine creation dialog that is way simpler than the previous one, uh, less paginated, more in line with GNOME's human interface guidelines. GNOME Builder can now start an application with the GDK Inspector active, and it also got a revamped message panel to make troubleshooting your apps easier. Basically, the messages are way more legible uh, when you're debugging something and you'll be able to know where the problem lies or where it actually stopped compiling or running at a specific point instead of looking through logs that are badly formatted. There's also Elastic, a graphical editor which is able to tweak the parameters of GDK4 and LibAdvita animations. Uh, LibAdvita and GDK4 introduced animations for applications inside of the app. It's not animations when you open an app window or close it or tile it. It's animations inside the app. For example, when you open a sidebar, it slides into view. Uh, maybe when the header bar changes, your buttons could do something. Or maybe inside of the app, when you're loading a curve, it could draw smoothly instead of popping in. Those animations are called spring animations, but they're very complex. Uh, they're not based on the usual duration and easing curve that you might find, for example, on a video editor. Uh, they're based on physics parameter, like uh, motion and, and length of motion and the weight of the object and stuff like that. And so they're way more powerful, but they're also way harder to understand when you don't have something to actually look at the final render. And so Elastic is this application. You have a view of all the parameters you can tweak, you can see the curve of the animation, and you can actually preview the animation to see if it does what you actually want to do. And then it generates the code in multiple languages so that you can embed it in your application and have something more modern and more useful. I know some people do not like animations inside of apps. Uh, those are bells and whistles and they, they just tend to clutter the experience. But for a lot of people, having elements moving in and out as you click on them makes, makes it way easier to understand what the app does and what you actually did and how to go back to something else. So it's really good that developers now will have some help to build those animations because if there's something that is super good for accessibility, it's inside of apps animations. Now there's also updates to Bottles, uh, that fantastic program that lets you run Wine, Proton, well, Windows programs using Wine and Proton inside of small containers. Uh, it has a revamped new Bottle interface and various UI and icon changes to make the application easier to use and understand. If you used Bottles in the past, you know that it can be quite convoluted, especially if you're not super familiar with the concept of wine, of wine prefixes, of various libraries like DXVK and stuff like that. And so while the first versions were really good and relatively easy to use if you knew your way around these concepts, uh, it's getting way better now for anybody else. 
It's way more understandable, labels are way clearer, the interface is way nicer. And so I think it's going to be of great help, especially for people on the Steam Deck who might want to run games that aren't on Steam or Heroic or stuff like that. I think it's good. <coughs> pirated, pirated games, probably. Let, let's, let's be honest, it's gonna be used for pirated games. Now, a lot of other apps uh, also made progress on GNOME, uh, like Denaro, the personal finance manager, Fractal, the Matrix client, and Login Manager Settings, Tube Converter, and a lot more. And so, yeah, it's great. The app ecosystem for GNOME is extremely vibrant. It's getting more polished. It's awesome, and I just can't get enough of it. Now, still on GNOME, uh, if you like KDE Connect, you might have used it on GNOME with the JS Connect uh, extension. Uh, GS, GS Connect extension, GNOME Shell Connect. Uh, but if you were using another GTK-based desktop, like XFCE, Budgie, Cinnamon, Pantheon, Mate, or basically everything that's not KDE or, or LXDE, uh, you, you, you had to use the KDE app because that GNOME Shell extension would not work because you were not using GNOME Shell. And a cute app inside of a GTK desktop never really looks quite right. And so there's a new application uh, in the cards called Valent, or Valent, don't really know how you're supposed to pronounce that, and it's a GDK client for those kind of desktops specifically. Uh, it already supports virtually all the features of KD Connect on Android, like Android notifications, replying to messages, syncing the clipboard, controlling the music from your phone to your desktop, sharing files, browsing the phone storage on your desktop, sending SMS from the desktop, executing predefined commands, controlling the mouse pointer, everything else. Uh, it also supports all the iOS features, which are way less numerous than on Android because iOS is a way more limited system. And the application is still in alpha right now. It doesn't have a tray icon, uh, it doesn't have a file manager integration, but it still runs in the background once you started it. So if you start it at the, at the boot time of your computer, it's going to stay in the background and you're always going to have your desktop accessible from KDE Connect on your phone. And if you reopen the app, you'll get its window. They will probably add a tray icon in the future. It looks good. It's still in alpha, but it's still available from Flathub right now. So if you want to use KDE Connect, but you, you were using the cute app, which looked weird and maybe probably had some theming issues and icon contrast problems, now you have a GTK client called Valent and it's pretty good. Now, here is our usual segment about AI because, well, everything new is happening in this segment right now. And so specifically, we're going to talk about OpenAI, which apparently bears its name very badly. Uh, Vice published a very scalding article about OpenAI and how it completely deviated from its original purpose. Because apparently, initially, the project had commitments to be fully open, like as in open source and transparent, fully non-commercial and to avoid any corporate involvement. They basically were the guys saying, we want to develop AI, we really believe in AI, but we think it should not be the monopoly of a big tech company. So it started as a non-profit and they were really committed to freely share all the code that they developed. But apparently today's incarnation of OpenAI is everything but. Uh, transparency is completely gone, no one knows what's happening there, and even Elon Musk, which co-founded the project, said that the company went in a direction that they didn't intend at all. Uh, it's now driven by speed and profit, which you would think Elon Musk would like, but apparently no, he, he doesn't. So OpenAI is now completely open to corporate backing, Microsoft being one of its biggest investors. They are all in on OpenAI and ChatGPT. They already integrated a lot of that stuff in Bing. And now OpenAI has formed a for-profit company. 
Now they also said that they would not release the source code for the training model and so fortunately they caved in to peer pressure and general pressure for, from the public and they ended up releasing that code on GitHub but then they moved to GPT-3 and they decided to publish zero source code on that at all. And apparently now employees are instructed to keep quiet about their work and the company culture is just focused on getting ahead of any other AI initiative. Uh, they just want to be first at everything on AI. They don't care about being open. They don't care about being non-profit. They don't care about improving the world using AI. They just care about making their AI the best that everyone uses and that's it. And if it means licensing it to multiple companies, well, that's exactly what they did. GPT-3 was exclusively licensed to Microsoft. And as I said, the source code has not been published. They also now only access, uh, they, on, they only allow access to their training model through an API. You can't look at the source code or at the exact data, allegedly to avoid it being misused, but it is still the complete opposite of their initial promise and commitment. And if you look at what this move fast approach has yielded, it's really hard not to be worried. Microsoft Search Assistant based on ChatGPT, the thing that they integrated on Bing, has shown clear tendencies to spread misinformation, to criticize its users after prolonged conversations, and it confidently will attest that they're right when they're evidently wrong. There were some issues where they, they talked about horses making eggs and that horses' eggs were bigger than, than chicken eggs, like, like it's a fact. They also confidently said that the date was 2022 when it was 2023 and they repeatedly attacked the user in their answers saying, no, you're wrong, you're an idiot. Why are you so, so stubborn? It is 2022, but it is clearly 2023. What the hell? This thing does not work. It is not reliable. You cannot integrate it in that current state on a mass market product like a search engine. Now, fortunately, it's in Bing, which is not a mass market product, but it still reaches millions of searches each day, probably tens or hundreds of millions, which means that their product, if it goes live now, will just help people have fake information all the time and confident fake information. And since the code isn't open, you have no way to know why it fails so badly or, or how you could help fix it. And AI could be a wonderful tool in the future, but the current craze is extremely scary. It's moving way too fast. They are breaking things all the time. It doesn't work. It is not reliable. It is not ready to be integrated in a prime time product. Even with all the usual, hey, if you think this is false, report it to us. You cannot crowdsource your internet search results. You cannot let people decide. If they are looking for that query, they do not know what is the correct answer. They're actually looking for that correct answer. So no, you cannot tell people, hey, tell us if we're wrong. No, people are just going to take what you're writing at face value. And that's just going to be a nightmare. We already have so many problems linked to social networks and the spread of misinformation by regular people. If we have AI inventing stuff out of the blue because they misunderstood what they trained on, the, the articles or the links or the videos that they trained on, it's gonna make it worse, way worse. It needs to be regulated. It needs to be slowed down until they have a product that is 99.9% .9 exact all the time. It, it, it's not acceptable if it's not. Now, if you want some more shady stuff, uh, let's turn to Google. 
apparently the company systematically destroyed instant chat messages that they used internally. Uh, every 24 hours, internal chat messages were deleted, which, I mean, it's, it's good practice in general, but not when you're under an antitrust investigation in the United States where you're actually supposed to keep every single communication made inside the company for review, to be reviewed by this investigation. These messages should have been kept. Uh, they, they had to be taken into consideration during the investigation. But Google said that they forgot to change the default behavior of their internal chats, which is basically if the employee does not say they want to keep the chat, it will be deleted after 24 hours. And this has been going on for the past four years. Four years uh, during which they were under investigation. Now, what's worse is that Google told the Department of Justice that they had put something in place to prevent this message deletion, which was a blatant lie because the behavior is still the default and has never been changed. Uh, it was also noted in a previous antitrust case against Epic Games. Uh, when Epic Games attacked Google on the Google Play Store, apparently they already had this thing in place where they deleted all messages. So it's two times now that they failed to comply and that they violated the law. And this could have some big problems. This could create some big problems for them uh, because it could lead to what is called an adverse jury instruction, which is basically the judge for the case telling the jury that, you know what, they deleted a lot of stuff. We don't know what was in it. So you can absolutely assume that everything they deleted would be incriminating for them and would cast them in a negative light, which basically immediately turns the jury against you, whatever the contents of these deleted messages. So if there was any doubt that Google still abused their dominant position and that they were willing to go to any length possible to preserve this abuse, uh, well, now there isn't any doubt anymore. It's just clearly, plainly obvious. Okay, and now let's complete this podcast with uh, some Linux gaming news. Uh, we're, first, we're going to turn to Wayland, uh, because as you know, if you game on Linux, currently you're going to need X11, probably. You're going to want to run X11. You can run Wayland, but it means that all your games, uh, generally native or running through Proton, will run using xWayland, which is basically an x.org server running on top of Wayland. The Wayland compositor renders an X server that then renders the game itself, which incurs some small performance penalty from 4 to 7% uh, performance degradation. It's not perceptible in every game. Vulkan titles seem to be less affected. Titles using Vulkan, uh, titles using OpenGL seem to be way slower. So that's still one holdout. If you want to get the best performance out of your gaming rig on Linux, you, you don't want to run Wayland currently. You can do it, but it's not the best. And so there's work going on on Wine to actually support Wayland natively. It's, a, it's basically a Wayland driver for Wine. That work has started a long while ago, but now the first parts of it are ready to be merged into main, mainline Wine, which means that everyone will be able to use that first part of the work including Proton, which is really great. Now, that's still just the very first small part. It's just the Wayland driver itself. It is not able to display anything yet. Uh, it's just to prepare the build tools to handle Wayland protocol files and to have the basic support. We'll have to wait for the second part to actually be able to make use of it. And that second part will include basic display support to actually display the games uh, under Wayland. But it still means that it's getting closer and closer. And so maybe the last holdout, well, the last 
mainstream holdout, if we can call it mainstream, uh, for Wayland to be used by everyone uh, will be gaming, and it's gonna it's gonna be lifted relatively soon. That's really cool, and. It's not just replacing X11 by Wayland just because it's newer. Uh, Wayland will probably let you game at higher frame rates and better, smoother performance than X.org because it's been developed way more recently. It's been developed with 3D acceleration in mind, which was never really the case for X.org. It's been tacked on afterwards. And so you probably will enjoy better performance because there are less layers, there are less latency, there's less latency between your X client and your X server because the Wayland compositor renders everything immediately. It's just going to be faster and you're probably going to see performance increases when games run through Wayland natively compared to running them on X.org, which is very exciting and very cool. And other gaming news, we have the Steam Deck, which has now passed 8,000 games supported. Uh, almost 3,000 verified titles, which are the games that run without any issues whatsoever on the Steam Deck, and so run without any issues on Linux as well. You just install them, click play, and they run, uh, whether you use Proton or they're native. And you have about 5,000 playable titles that will also run very well, probably will run perfectly on most Linux computers, but might not be perfectly suited for the Steam Deck either because performance is a bit low or it's not suited to a small display or not suited to be used with a controller. So the number of new titles being added to that uh, verified or, or Steam Deck certified, I think, list uh, is really stable ever since they started the program. They keep adding them at a, at a steady rate. It hasn't slowed down, even though the Steam Deck is now one year old already, one year old. It's insane to think that. And uh, yeah, it's they're, they're still keeping at it. And 8,000 titles is probably the biggest number of games there ever was available on a handheld console. If you consider the Steam Deck as a gaming console, which it absolutely can be if you stick to Steam and just buy your games from there and play them from there. You have nothing to worry about or using a desktop to install other things. You can consider the Steam Deck as a, as a console and as a console, it's probably the one that has the most playable games ever from anything that has ever been released, which is really cool. And as time goes by, more games are put in the playable category more than in the verified one which means that the, the games that run absolutely perfectly and really well on the Steam Deck are basically getting... Well, there's less and less of them, basically. And the games that are added now uh, to this list are more, yes, you can play them, but maybe they really need a mouse, so you're going to have not so great an experience, or maybe the text will be super small, or maybe they just cannot be rendered well at a small resolution, so you might have some small artifacts. It, it's a shame, but I think... At some point, they're gonna have covered basically every single title that is interesting to have. And so they will be able to dedicate all that reviewing time to maybe contacting developers saying, hey, you know what, your game is still in playable, but with a very small update to your, to your in-game text or in-game font, you could render it way better on the Steam Deck and it could move to verified and it might generate more sales for Steam Deck users. What do you think? At some point, I think they just move that program to developer outreach instead of just game reviews, which will be more productive for, for users in the end, probably. And so that concludes this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can find all the links to the articles in the show notes. You can find links to my social networks, to my support thingies like Patreon or PayPal. 
in the show notes as well. You can also find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, I don't know, Pocket Cast and everything else. But it should be about everywhere right now. So if you're listening it uh, on the website and you'd like to add it to a podcast client, it's probably in virtually every podcast directory out there. And so, yeah, just enjoy. And if you have any comments on any of these topics, you can always leave them on the website itself. There's a comment section underneath the podcast where I try to always answer the comments because there aren't that many. So if you want to talk to me, you can talk to me there. So thank you all for listening to this. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I guess you will hear me in the next one. Bye.